Hi, I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sound Strategic, our podcast showcasing the talents of the exceptional analysts that make up the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And I am delighted to have with me today Henry Boyd, who runs part of our defense and military analysis team, contributes to the Military Balance and the Military Balance Plus database. He uh, was educated at two of the very best schools here in this cosmopolitan city. The first, he did his undergraduate work in war studies at King's College and his graduate work at the London School of Economics. Henry, thanks for coming to talk today. It's an absolute pleasure, Corey. Thank you for having me on. I like the fact you think I went there because they're good schools and not because they are all within a, like a one kilometer radius of my current place of employment. I just, got, I just got lazy. I kept getting off at the same tube stop every day. Yeah, you couldn't be bothered to be creative about where you were going to school, so you just went nearby where you were. Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> Done me, me well so far. So what the defense and military analysis team is brilliant at is metrics and we've just determined Henry's school selection metric which is proximity to workplace. There's a graph on that somewhere in probably pretty colors. <laughs> so as our regular listeners know we have a standard set of questions that we that we put all of the analysts to so that we have some continuity to the listening experience and the first one is what in your work Henry ties into things people are reading about in the newspapers and worrying about in strategic studies right now? Ooh, I've done, in my time at the Institute, I've worked on a lot of different things, but right now I've been doing most work in the last couple of years on military capabilities for the United States, China, and Russia. And you may have noticed that um, great power rivalry is back, baby. Uh, for better or, well, maybe for worse. Um, and with that comes the possibility of military competition or even conflict between the great powers. So I would say that's a pretty interesting time to be working on that kind of subject, and particularly for a product called the military balance, you think? So I want to uh, post a link to the brilliant Chinese military wall chart that you made for this year's, for the 2019 military balance, because it's absolutely spiffy. Uh, and I hadn't seen anything like it, so we'll post a link to that. My question, though, is why does Russia qualify as part of great power competition? What's the metric that gets us to Russia being in that weight class? It's an interesting combination of capability and um, actual uh, its actual intent or use of power, use of um, power across the spectrum not just military but in other senses in some senses uh, what you do is is to some extent as important as what you have it's still russia is still the largest um, by quantity the largest nuclear power in the world and still retains a very sizable military force even if in comparison to both the us and russia it is in numerical and investment terms lower down the pecking order but Russia is under, Russia's actions in the last few years have demonstrated its ability to achieve a political ends with its military capability that in some ways reflects um, is, is comparable if not better than some of its peers such as the US and, and China who have struggled um, to achieve long-standing political ends with their military activity. 
I think Syria is a perfect illustration of that, right? At the time, the Obama administration was saying there's no military solution to this problem. Russia actually proved there's a military solution to this problem. They prevented Assad from losing power. They roped the Iranian ground game in with a Russian air game, and they became the determiner of the outcome in Syria. I, there's one of, I think one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked is there's a difference between there is no military solution to the problem and there is no military solution to the problem that is acceptable within the bounds of what we want to happen and what, we pre- what we're prepared to break in order to do so. I think there are, there are good grounds for not undertaking military actions such as the one Russia undertook in Syria, but at the same time, you can, you can achieve results with the right combination of complete disregard for human rights and or long-term stability in, in places like Syria. I think that's exactly right. So the, the Russian tactic of following up Syrian government chemical weapons strikes by bombing the hospitals that the casualties were being taken to to, to try and increase the deniability of chemical weapons use is an utterly brutal, incredibly effective uh, tactic the Russians undertook that made them a major power broker in the Middle East, and that's something that those of us in free societies would be unwilling to do. And so they accrued enormous political power as a result of not so much their capability, but their willingness. So let's talk about China and the U.S. and great power competition. How do you stack those two up? It's an interesting combo of location and time frame. It depends on where on, on where you military military activity and military competition doesn't take place in a vacuum. You don't line up everything you have all at once on a neutral playing field, equidistant away from your home base. It takes place for in specific places for specific reasons. And if you if you do an overall measurement of things. You conduct an inventory of the military forces of the China, of, of Russia, of United States and China. Beg your pardon. Um, you will still see a U.S. a U.S. that is superior in many different categories of military capability. However, that's that's not to say that within the specific bounds of a current conflict in the Asia Pacific region that the U.S. would be able to bring all of that capability to bear. It's much further away from China. It has other cap- it has other responsibilities globally it needs to attend to at the same time so how you how you figure out what an appropriate level of relative balance between various capabilities one of the again i'm getting ahead of myself one of the things we occasionally mistake in assessing military capabilities is you don't always have to be the best you have to be good enough at a certain point in time at a certain place in time to achieve what you want to achieve so you're telling me that assessing military capabilities ought to be graded like Olympic diving. We want a degree of difficulty factored into the score because what the Chinese are trying to do is prey on the autonomy of their regional neighbors uh, and fight close to their shore to push to break American alliances, to push us back out of the Asia-Pacific region, whereas what the United States is trying to do is fight... How many miles away from America's territorial holdings um, to do something incredibly difficult in concert with other countries who get a political veto over how we do it? I'd say, and in, in addition to that, trying to do so 
within um, some ethical and legal constraints that some other countries aren't necessarily there's a a balancing level between how far and how far you want to go but there's a I think it's certainly you're not every country faces its own individual military requirements and its own it has its own political objectives and its own um, relationship between what, where, where on that spectrum the military force will be employed to achieve them. I think the US has historically always undertaken fairly ambitious, incredibly ambitious goals for its political ends. So its 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 military force is designed to do a whole lot of things that, that on paper, is is a very hard task to achieve. Simultaneously achieving mm-hmm. overmatch in the Asia Pacific against a rising China, rising China, whilst reassuring its European allies against Russia, whilst maintaining an Overwatch position in the Middle East and overseeing global shipping. This is the kind of activity that is uh, is only only achievable at low cost under the most benign of circumstances. Um, and I think one of the one of the, the, the long term problems that the U.S. now faces is where it puts its priorities here. Do, do, can it continue to do things? We've seen historically great powers who have maintained that kind of global presence have have been able to do so for a while, and then have faced over the long term challenges to decline of their position, and they have to manage that. Managing that decline is something that doesn't necessarily sit well with established American political norms and it's something that'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. I regret to inform you, Henry Boyd, that you have stumbled onto a subject I actually know something about, which is uh, what makes for peaceful transitions between an established hegemonic power and a rising challenger. Um, And so I want to quiz you on a couple of things about this. One is that um, it's certainly true that historically uh, the trend you describe uh, is the dominant theme. But one of the things that's different about the time of American dominance in the international order is that we didn't recreate previous orders. We created an order where power has greater legitimacy because weaker states get a say over outcomes. And Uh, creating rules that more or less bind us all voluntarily and that more or less get grounded in institutions uh, has created the anomalous historical uh, incidents whereby the strongest powers in the order are actually allied to the United States, not in opposition to it. And the loudest... Uh, hand-wringing over the end of the liberal international order is actually from America's allies, and they're actually desperate that the United States itself is collapsing it. Um, So where does China fit in this constellation? Can it accrue the military power to attain the political aims uh, that it appears to be seeking if Western powers play team sports? That is going to be an interesting calculation. I think the time frame China is looking at, if you take them at face value, they have 2020, 2035, and 2049 end goals for various aspects of their military modernization. And those are then tied to levels of expected capability and levels of, um, presumably, although not explicitly stated, the levels of military capability their potential opponents are expected to have in those periods of time one would assume they've done the maths on that and they have their own internal views about how those calculations end up. 
my suspicion is those calculations are not based upon a united and um, determined military resistance from both the United States and key regional and extra-regional partners. I think their their view probably is that historically that hasn't that, that there are whilst the Western Alliance has hung together pretty well for the Cold mm-hmm. War, it has not hung, it has not hung, always hung together with one voice and in one broad, full throated <laughs> chorus. Um, it debates about na- minimum NATO spending among, amongst others and, and basing capability. deterrence, or yeah. whether we'd go to war over Berlin. All those things have come true at one point or another. Um, <laughs> If you look at the base maths, there is a kind of econ- China is an individual unit actor. It's, ec- it's economic, the economic base it can mobilize in support of its defense spending is pretty pretty substantive. And it's a China versus U.S. comparison, you can you can see broad trend lines where China's overall economic capabilities and thereby so its defense spending can catch up and overtake the Americans, and thereby over a long period of time clearing up the kind of investment in capability the America has a lead on them that China might be able to overtake that. So there's a question for bandwagoning versus resistance, and obviously there's a, a point at which if too much resistance is created by a, a rising Chinese military capability that is too outwardly obvious or too, uh, too outwardly um, worrying, uh, uh, generates a threat balance amongst other regional states, then you can, you can create the seeds of your own problem where simply you're not going to be able to do enough yourself to overcome that. So the reason Franklin Delano Roosevelt in World War II had a Europe-first strategy, even though the Asia-Pacific War was what brought the United States into the conflict, was that he made a judgment that if either Britain or the Soviet Union capitulated to Nazi Germany, there was no other constellation of powers the United States could gather together in order to constrain Nazi Germany. And I think about that when I think about the balance of power in Asia all the time, because if the Chinese are such brilliant strategists, why are they reinforcing America's alliance relations at a time we are recklessly endangering them? It it just doesn't fit with this notion of these fabulous mandarins who have a hundred year time frame and you know, we plodding liberals can't manage to put one shoe in front of the other. Do you have a view on this before we go on to other questions? <laughs> I think there's always a there's always a danger in overestimating sort of opaque levels of you would jump to worst case scenarios. This is true international politics, but defence as well. In that level of if we don't know where on a spectrum in terms of capability someone is in terms of how brilliant a strategist are they, are they we don't have very much evidence to judge by we, te- we tend to kind of worst case worst case scenario can play out and we suddenly go well they must be great because we don't know very much about other anything, anything we don't know much about their failures we look at we look at what they're doing and we go like this is a, this is a challenge for us they must be geniuses and we yeah <laughs> i think that's exactly right so how did you get interested in this line of work henry boyd Oof. i'm a child of the 1980s and so the 1980s the last kind of gasp of serious Cold War fear and the, the introduction of very shiny military equipment on both East and West. Um, you see the kind of the great the great American collection of last offset military equipment, so F-15, F-16, M-1, all of this stuff is in service and big pictures and big toys available of these things during the 1980s, 1990s, so I'm sure that influenced me somewhere along the line. Um, I I think I dabbled in wargaming as a kid. Not, not, right? not very large old, but yeah, I, I, I was... Um, 
I'm not sure how much how much participatory it was, but cert- certainly in the sort of the, um, the the works on uh, the books, the magazines, the collections, on stuff like that. And I became a military I was interested in military history somewhere along the line there, probably in the teenage years. Um, so I, I think some pe- some people in my family regret having bought something quite small. It set me <laughs> off on this wild historical course, but that that that. That was, that was the school, school, school years. Of, oh, that's um, excellent. So you knew this was where you were headed. I knew I wanted to... I, I knew I was interested in the subject matter. I didn't believe this was a career you could have. I believe I may... You mean they pay me to do yeah, what I, I'm I may, doing now? I may have been somewhat surprised to discover there were professional jobs outside the military that did this kind of thing. <laughs> I'm still somewhat surprised by this. But I, I think it's, it's, there's always a, there was a little level of fascination into... Why humans continue to continue to act in they continue to act in, a, in in warlike fashion? War continues to be a, a human activity that is regularly practiced, but always gets a bad write up. People are, people are very quick to tell you how bad this thing is, and they're right in many ways, and yet we keep doing it. And I am absolutely fascinated about what about human beings makes that the case. Um, so yeah, uh, that that manifest that high fluting philosophy concept manifests in. Spending a lot of time working on orders of battle for the British Army and European armies during the 18th and 19th century, and then going and looking at medieval history on various other things, and discovering how little we actually know about detail in these periods. It's always deeply disturbing to a historian. Like, it can't possibly be true. We just don't know what happened. God, God bless medieval history. Favorite book in your field? Ah, this is this is a. What is your favorite? What's the fav- your favorite book Which in your field, your... and why is it Safe Passage by Corey Shockey available in all good bookstores and very Literally, reasonably priced? Nobody has given that answer. <laughs> Literally nobody. Nor do I imagine anybody ever will. Oh, there's, there's, there is a Grover Cleveland fan club out there. <laughs> exciting power transition work for us. And asking asking academics about their favorite book is I think it's akin to I think asking parents about which of their children is their favorite. Okay, the my parents have a very clear. Uh, lexicon of who their favorite children are so come on give me the books well, all right as one of my friends used to used to get asked the question at kings which war is your favorite his only answer was i love them all equally um <laughs> i am not going to expect a favorite book i'm going to pick the last one i read that i really enjoyed on the subject which is actually a book on war gaming um it's simulating war by philip saban who is professor of strategic ah. studies at kings my old alma mater um I think wargaming still gets, to some extent, a bad or slightly dismissive rap in the wider kind of public consciousness. It's associated with kind of recreational unseriousness. It's it's elves and dragons and sort of it's it's not a serious Civil war a serious re-enactors. yeah. It, it's it's something that people do in their day off, but not a not a serious tool for helping us in an academic way understand sort of real world problems. And I think one of the, one of these is actually it, it is a really useful tool in. Putting the human, especially if you're conducting a manual war game in in person, putting the human element back into a sort of quintessentially human activity. It's how you get human input into testing and simulating sort of your hypotheses on theories like, well, do we have enough? Do we have enough military assets in this region for this scenario? Is there a better way of, of working? How whether that's actually true than getting people to run through. In practice, and you can't do that. You can't put all the heavy metal out there every day and run that 150 times. But you can get 150 different people to run a device scenario. And I think um, Philip does it. Saving does a really good job at explaining both the utility of doing that kind of wargaming, but also the utility of be, uh, having people, pe- being, people being asked to design their own gaming and come up with and think about how you, how you factor in how you recreate 
the various uncertainties that surround war as an activity. And we talk about you can talk about the quintessential Clausewitzian description of war, comparing it to a game or a game of cards. And I think that war gaming should deserves, and it's now being taken more seriously within the military but, and within defence establishments. So I think deserves a, a better, wider appreciation of its value and its place within um, strategic studies generally. That's an excellent answer, and I will go read the book um, so that I can uh, perhaps someday gain admittance into. DMAP's wargaming of these of issues like could what does European defense autonomy look like and what would it look like if you didn't have Britain in the European Union uh, which is a terrific piece of work DMAP, the defense and military analysis team has done and I encourage everybody to go see it okay Henry what's the conventional wisdom in your field that's wrong oh it's a while. how long have we got this a couple of hours three hours maybe <laughs> I don't know sure we, we stand with this <laughs> Oh, I, I'm, I'm t- tempted to go with the uh, the idea that you, that you have to put everything in acronyms and, and long conceptual words for it to mean anything, but I, I think we'll leave that to others. I mentioned the shiny military equipment in the 1980s, and I'm, I mean, I'm going to be very careful how I say this, because part of the military balance is a very long list of military inventories. I, don't get me wrong, equipment has an important role to play in military capability, but if you judge by the volume of output that is produced upon military equipment and comparative military equipment studies versus other aspects of military capability, such as doctrine, organization, training, and personnel, perhaps, I think we're, we're overly weighted towards equipment in our analysis, and we, get, we can get very easily distracted by military equipment metrics and compare it, uh, the, the endless internet discussions about which main battle tank is better. I mean, again, I, men- <laughs> I mentioned at the start that military activity takes place for a reason in a specific place in a specific time and what, which piece of equipment, which piece of doctrine is better depends upon how that plays out. And overly emphasizing one particular aspect of capability can eventually be unhelpful actually understanding what, cap- what capability is and what it means and thereby... How, you, how useful it is in any certain circumstance. I've always liked Jeffrey Blaney's uh, description of the cause of war being so simple. And he, in his book on the causes of war, he bats away all the sophisticated explanations and concludes that, uh, that countries fight wars because they think they can win. And too much focus on the shiny military equipment very often creates false positives. Um, A belief that we have the best equipment, therefore we have the best army. Again, any remedial study of history would show you that's not true. Any remedial study of American and allied wars of the last 17 years would also show that's not true. So you don't even have to study history. You just have to study current events to know that that's not true. And I, but I think you're right. There's a bias towards equipment as the proper metric. And doctrine matters. Grit matters. Right? Mm-hmm. Buford at Gettysburg kind of yeah. grit um, <laughs> makes a huge difference. And it looks to me, talking back to great power competition, that the Chinese are fearful that they may begin to have the equipment, they may begin to have the spending, but they don't have the combat experience and they probably don't have the training and war gaming to make them confident that they can do what they say they can do. I think there's no doubt there are the, the Chinese view gaps in their overall level of military capability. They have set themselves a long time frame to fix those. They are aware of what they are. 
um, whether that whether self knowledge is obvious, it's the first step towards overcoming a problem, but whether it's sufficient is not true. Um, their ability to close those gaps is is another subject of interesting debate. Um, I think it's interesting. It's not. It's nice to see that debate is being taken up now, and that we there again. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of discussion, and rightfully so on various various new Chinese equipment projects. But I think more, perhaps more important to determining the the level and where and when China will pose a military challenge to both the United States and to its Western allies is really determined by where China feels confident enough in those less tangible aspects of military capability and what the, where, where their internal reckoning on what, where they stack up vis-a-vis other powers are. What's the time frame? How long? How much? When is, when, when is, when is good good enough? Again, back to Blaney. No. Right? When do they think they can win? Hmm. Um, I'd say there's probably one or two aspects in history where people have gone to war expecting to lose, but it's rare. Most people, most people go to war with go to war because there is a there is a reason, a, a chance somewhere along the line that if you roll the dice like this, things will work out in your favour. Ernie May's magnificent book, Strange Victory, about the about the German invasion of France in 1940 and why French resolve collapses. His recounting of the interior German conversations, astonished at their success, um, and we think about that as so predetermined an outcome, and they didn't think it, about it as predetermined. <laughs> they were much more risk tolerant um, and thought they were likely to lose, but it was worth doing anyway, which is a whole different frame of reference. <laughs> okay, best work you think you've ever done. Or let me put it differently. The work you've done that you like best... Oh, that's a wonderful question. Oh, so there, was, there was this school college I did when I was five. Oh, I no, no, wait. wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I, we've mentioned the China chart already. I mean, I hate to say it because I am a perfectionist about things like that. I am really happy with it. I, you I should like how be. that turned out. That's, that's something I it's think is... It's incredibly detailed and informative. Both a high-quality piece of work but a useful piece of work given the timing. I don't think we've got enough information in the public space about the size the size and scope and deployment of China's armed forces within China. We know much more about Russia publicly. There's enough information. There's a lot of information out there now. Um, China is talked about in broad terms, but there's not enough English language detail work on China to, to begin to make, this, make assessments about its actual size and direction of its armed forces. The piece of work I'm sneakily proudest of even though I really shouldn't be proud of, is I remember this the other day. I was thinking about something else entirely. There is there is a one Wikipedia article that cites me by name and quotes me. It's the illustrious Syrian 18th Armored Division. I have no idea why I get a name check and a quote rather than just a citation on this, but I do, and I treasure Henry I treasure Boyd. that piece. Even though the blog itself not my finest piece of work, I have to say. <laughs> It was Henry that- Boyd of the IISS noted that, quote, in Holmes, the 18th Armored Division was reinforced by special forces units and, dot, 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 by elements of the 4th Division under Mahert's de facto command, end quote. Which takes me to our last question. You cannot give the same answer to this question that you gave to the previous question. <laughs> so the macaroni collage is out there. <laughs> yes. What's your favorite data visualization? So... I went. I've gone old school for this one, um, and gone an old intelligence classic, which um, courtesy of the CIA. So this is. I, 
it comes from um, Richards J. Richards J. Hoyer's collected work on um, psychology and intelligence analysis. I think I get the title right there. Poor um, Richards, uh, unfortunately, passed away last year, but was an absolute centerpiece of the CIA's work on intelligence psychology. I think the study he's 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 referring to here in this this particular graphic is actually related to Sherman Kent's wo- original work on psychology, and it's it's a sort of series of charts, scatter chart um, in a series of activities. He asked 23 NATO intelligence officers to put a percentage probability score next to various qualifying words in intelligence documentation. These are commonly used words used in multiple different um, contexts in NATO documentation. They're supposed to indicate the same thing, but if you look at the documentation, you, the, the replies here, you discover that there are some very, very disparate Wait, wait, they're describing the same event? Not necessarily, but they're supposed to. They're supposed to indicate the same. These these wordings are supposed to be indicative of the same kind of probability score. Okay. If you use, if you use the term probable, you're supposed to be talking about a specific chance of something occurring, or to give the the okay. idea, intelligence is important. You can convey not just understand what's going on, but also to convey to other people, like so probability. So about, if somebody about says the chances are slight. What this data visualization suggests is that most people consider that between zero and ten percent probability. Correct, and you can see there's there's a nice cluster of people there, so that's got a fairly tight understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. If you look at things like probably or we believe, and you see that <laughs> some people think there's less than twenty percent chance at one end, and some people think there's more than eighty percent chance of that happening, and this is kind of I mean this this is back in the 1950s, 60s, but you understand this is this is not great, and you get a sense of yeah, is probable more probable than probably? <laughs> is is likely bet is likely a high, is there a higher chance something that's likely to happen happening than something that's probable to happen? And this 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 human element in intelligence that how how we make judgments and we convey our convey our level of certainty in those judgments to other people is essential to good intelligence work. But it was something that for most of human history we really hadn't thought about or how. So what do these terms mean? They're vague judgment terms. So what this does for me is validate Henry Kissinger's rule when he was national security advisor that when when given, you know, papers explaining something that might happen, he required the NSC staff to assign a probability, a numerical probability. And looking at how sloppy the use of this language is and how wide the scatter plots are for interpretation of the terms it really does suggest that you know giving something a 50% probability solves a lot of the sloppiness of the language i really like the way it reinforces your point about human cognition and the human element in warfare as well as in intelligence analysis um, that's most excellent uh, anything else? I see another perception of probability chart, Henry. Well, I, I have three versions of this chart with increasingly nice graphics. The original one is, is <laughs> obviously sort of... Yeah, our graphical expectations in 1960s, 1970s were perhaps not as high as the full-color world, technicolor world we live in now. So I was actually interested not just in the original chart's visualization, but in people's attempts to update it and make it... Whether or not the introduction of additional kind of colourful graphic elements helps or hinders the message of the graphic, that's one of the things I, I was thinking about in terms of data visualisation. Is sometimes we can get we get confused between what looks good, 
that we like the way it looks and what convincingly tell what clearly and convincingly tells the story and conveys the information to the viewer. And a, a good data visualization is one that does the latter, not necessarily one that does the former. Yes, and yet a lot of data visualizations mistake mm. uh, visual interest from accurate depiction of meaning. Uh, mm. So I like that you tease that out. Henry Boyd, thank you very much for this education. Thank you for the excellent work you do for the IISS. Thank you for the wry, salacious humor you bring to the doing of that work and to your leadership of people in this organization. Thank you thank very you. much. What I have learned today, my friends, is that uh, Henry is even nerdier than I am because he dove down the rabbit hole with this whole spate of perceptions of probability. I learned that the uh, how much it matters to not just weigh what we know how to measure, but to also grapple with the important human elements and the sloppiness of human cognition as we so that we don't persuade ourselves that we know with greater precision than we actually do what it is we are looking at. Henry Boyd, thank you so much for this education. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here. Mm-hmm.